1: Welcome to post Golden Globes show your work. We are back. I was
2: going to say it's a, a regular episode, but I don't know if we have regular episodes roughly
1: from now through the Oscars, right? It feels like every week or every other week there's an award show.
2: There's an award show or a something to navigate around. We're also uh, we have an impending snowstorm as we record <laughs> this. So
1: and we haven't slept in over what, 40, 40 hours now? That's about right. Yeah. So this is going to be a good show. Let's do <laughs> this. Um, um, yeah. So it is award show season. Yeah. And, you know, the
2: Golden Globes is the kickoff, right? Like yeah. every year it's sweatpants and couch and kind of going, oh, it begins a little bit of magic. I'm just going to come right out and say it. Didn't feel the magic last night. Um Maybe I was hoping it would happen, that it would uh, grow on me and I would find the magic of Christmas. And by that, I mean the Golden Globes. Yeah. But I didn't. I loved the parts of the show that I loved. It was you called it on the site Sandra O's Oscars and Golden Globes. You called (laughs) it on the site Sandra O's Golden Globes. Guys, we're tired. Um, (laughs) But that was really the best part. Like, are you excited about the movies and the races
1: and, like, really biting your nails? I really am, because I do think that, ironically, even though it was an uneven show, I get it, but what the Golden Globes did this year, which they don't do every year, is they kind of upended the race. Yes, this is
2: true. It's kind of anybody's game. We don't know… Based on this, the probability people yeah. who do that. You know, there are people who spend all their time probabilitying the yeah. awards and that kind of thing. Yep. I love those sites. Yeah.
1: They don't know. They don't have uh, They were completely wrong on, like, for instance, Bohemian Rhapsody. But, you know, if you don't mind, I kind of want to backtrack because you hit on something that I didn't know that we would talk about, but I do want to talk about. Would it be okay to sort of TV producer geek out right now?
2: I mean, it's always okay to do that. Is it okay for the listeners? I don't know, but
1: uh, yeah, let's do that. Because you were talking about magic, right? And we use this term a lot, we who work in TV, TV magic. And the Globes used to be pretty good at delivering, like we always knew that this was the show where people were drinking, and they were great at cutaways, and it was that loose show that didn't feel unprofessional. Or unproduced, right? That's right. You know, there are expressions about a lot of different
2: kinds of work that if it's done well, you don't notice it, Mm -hmm. right? You don't see it happen. Yes. But if it's not done, then you really notice. That's right. And that's what was going on last night.
1: Yeah, like it was, listen, this is a show that is not new. NBC just renewed their contract with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association for another, I think it's eight years. They've been doing it for a long time. When you you and I met, we had like a Golden Globes night together on the phone. That's when you came up with my favorite phrase that we use all the time on Laney Gossip, which is sit down, Terry Hatcher. Right. Which uh, (laughs) Lara and I, another friend of ours, had come up with when we were
2: watching some award show together. like.
1: And it was the Golden Globes that like, has a history and has a, a certain polish. It's Dick Clark Productions, isn't it? It is. They've been around forever. So, how did this show get so Mickey Mouse? Or what was it about it? Because, for example, uh, the
2: Golden Globes has gone back and forth on, for example, bringing you back from the commercial break with a music cue. Yeah. You know what the one I'm thinking of? Like, yes. Yes. And now, welcome, I don't know, somebody from 2005, Tina Fey and John Legend. Yeah. Like, it was always the randomest thing. But those little touches that make you feel like you know what's going on, big sweeping pans of the room, it without calling people out, it felt like a new team or a new initiative to make the show look different. And it did look different. But often what happens in those cases, and look, I've been on every side of this. Sometimes people are like, oh, we want to make it different. We want to make it fresher. And then what they learn. (laughs) Do they say it like that? Yeah, fresher. (laughs) (laughs) What they learn is, oh, no, there's a reason that people did things the Uh way that you thought was old or boring or whatever.
1: I fucking love this because you're right. As soon as you said that, how many times have I, for example, walked in and been like, oh, we need a template. Oh, we need to change this up. And you realize, like, three weeks later, oh, fuck, like, I'm the new Jack who came in <laughs> <laughs> with, like, all kinds of bursting enthusiasm and know it allness," and Let's go back to the way we've been doing it.
2: Yeah. I think that is a new person's disease in any forum, in any job. I think that you have to kind of wait and watch to see, like, if you really understand why a system is the way it is before you're like, anyway, let's throw it all out. Yeah. Uh, And I say this from experience because I've been the one to do it. I mentioned those music cues, sometimes called bumpers, because I remember in one of the first half hours that I produced, I was like, well, I don't want them to be like that. I want them to be like people talking, but it doesn't work because people don't know that they, you're queuing to send them away to go to the fridge for what was then a commercial break.
1: Um, You know, you learn these things. So in your experience, when you were watching, you've been in, in this longer than me and obviously, you're officially a producer, whereas I'm a wannabe producer on camera talent. I mean, I'm not sure we really <laughs> need to uh, talk up the… But okay, go on. So, yeah, like, what is your suspicion? If you were to hazard a guess, someone said to you, Taha, I need an analysis of what happened last night. and I need it in two hours. My gut… This is based on nothing.
2: This is, I want to be clear, this is not truth. This is not rumor that I'm couching in hyperbole. This is pure imagination. Yeah. But it looks to me like they were going in a certain direction production-wise and then had to scrap their plans uh, late in the game and what we saw was playing catch-up. So, for example, uh, you heard Sandro and Andy Samberg say oh, we gave up our Christmas to work on this, right? right? Like there's, let's say there would be a month of intense prep and production. Right. I'm saying I think somebody quit or was fired on December 27th. Uh-huh. And then they had to scramble around yeah. that. Or a team or something because one person
1: should be right replaceable. I I would agree with that. And even in terms of the tech or the staging, the stage felt
2: small. It did feel small. And that is one of those things that it's the same ballroom. Yeah. It's the same everything. You know what you're working with. Well, that's where talented camera people and tech directors can make the stage look the way it's supposed to look. You yeah. know, give you room. Yeah. Um, remember that moment where Lady Gaga was leaving the stage uh, after she'd listened to somebody tell her how brilliant she was? Yes. While the cast of… Black Panther was coming on. Yes. Remember that and they're yes. trying to step around her. But if you think about where we were watching that from as the viewer, we were the camera and we were kind of crunched in the corner down front like kind of looking at them yeah. from a narrow angle instead of out in the wide on stage. So that's partly a director issue right. like why didn't you take the wide shot? Why didn't yeah. we see that from out here in the ballroom? Yeah. Um lots of gestures guys uh, happening. And also maybe the answer to that is, well, maybe the camera wasn't where it was supposed to be, that wide cam. Yeah. Why is that? I have no idea. But these are sort of the questions uh, that you realize choosing how to how to show you the stage, how to reveal the space to the viewer yeah. is part of what gives you that space that you're talking about, like that sense of right. this is a big room or it isn't or whatever. I also feel as though… In past years, you often know… The other thing about the Globes that's so different is the tables, right? That yes. there are people at tables with their shows and… or films, and you often can tell the proximity of who's beside who. Remember that year that Janelle Monet was nominated both for Moonlight and for uh, Hidden Figures? Yeah. And they arranged the tables to be so close together that she could kind of hop back and forth. Yeah. Uh, And I didn't have a sense of that geography this year, of who was sitting at tables that were close to whom or not. I know where
1: Jessica Chastain was, but that's it. Yeah. So yeah, it was a little different. You know, at the Emmys, they always have a category that is like best live award show or whatnot, and it's the Oscars going up against um, the Super Bowl or whatever. Sure. I think Beyonce was nominated this year. Sometimes it's the Kennedy Center honors. Yeah. Like it's… That kind of thing. I don't think the Globes ever make it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I don't think so. And that's fine. Like, Sesame Street never makes it either, right? But they… I know Sesame Street is not live, but you get the… Idea. But yeah. they've always done what they do fairly well. Yeah. And this didn't feel like no. that. And maybe that's why it felt less engaging. The other thing… I'm about to full sacrilege here, so it is sometimes known that when… An award show is going on and it's going through and, like, the momentum is happening. And then when it comes time for the honorarium award, the, like, the 10-minute speech or whatnot, that people kind of go, here's the slump. No disrespect to Jeff Bridges or anybody, but that's a known thing, right? Yeah. What I found this year is I didn't feel that slump because there
1: wasn't that much energy to begin with. Well, I mean, that was my criticism of Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, who were the first presenters of the night. Because, listen, the the hosts Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh, they come out, they have to set a tone, right? They mm-hmm. build up the energy, they which get a...
2: I thought they did. I don't. Me too.
1: I disagree with uh,
2: critiques that their jokes didn't land, uh, but maybe we were just their intended
1: audience because I thought they were going quite well. The point is, is to get the room warm and fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And jacked up. And the room was. They they were feeling it. They were like, oh, no one's gonna be mean to us, first of all, right? Yeah. Like it's it's not Jimmy Kimmel with like the verbal sniper. In years past, it was whoever, like what's his face? Ricky Gervais or even Amy and Tina had some teeth, right? And everybody in the room was kind of like, Am I gonna get it this time? Is she gonna like go after George Clooney? Are they gonna make a Leonardo DiCaprio joke? But they seemed pretty relaxed. They were like, oh, Andy and Sandra are going to be nice. And you could feel the din rising. They were drinking more. They could, And so the energy was good. Then Gaga and Cooper came out with their monotones and their we're so serious about our film shit that it sucked the life out of that room. And I don't think that they were quite able to recover with any of the subsequent, um, with any, many, many, I should say. The, the Wakanda crew did, did a good job, but again, they were only out for 30 seconds.
2: Yeah. You know, I don't disagree with with the assessment of, of Gaga and Cooper ever. Like, God, it's… The whole thing is humorless. I'm just going to say it. It's humorless. <laughs> the whole… Like, the movie was one thing and everything around it and the significance of the film and the meaning yes. of the dress and the… what It's so earnest. I'm going to shoot myself.
1: Ironically, and they're making a movie about Hollywood magic and fame, and there's you no, know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's no winks. There's no levity. It's a bit… The whole environment around it is so dour. But
2: I also wonder, to go back to your earlier point, if it's if it's Ricky Gervais or it's Amy and Tina or whoever hosted last year, sorry that we already don't Seth remember. Seth Meyers? Yeah, um… Well, maybe Seth Myers would have the same critique. I wonder if if it's too gentle, it's like the substitute teacher thing, right? Yeah. If it's too gentle, they get a bit rowdy. Mm-hmm. Like there were times when you would hear people like blatantly not paying attention and talking while Andy and Sandra were like, "Hi, hi, we're back. Well, no, we're back now. Like yeah. we're doing a thing." I wonder if a little fear of God of the hosts. And a little of that tension that you're talking about, it maybe doesn't make a warmer room, but mm-hmm. it does make for a
1: tighter production. Okay, so on that note, that was the show. It fell flat for you in parts. Yeah. As it did for me. I might say though that the good parts, as you said, really saved it for me. Like I'm still walking away from the Sandra O oh Golden Globes with a Sandra O oh Globe. For sure, as is she, and mm-hmm. so she should.
2: It was her night yes. in every way, and she just came for it. It was great.
1: That said, award shows are work. You go to work, you show up to work, you're working when you're there. Some of the work involves talking to the bright people to set up who you're going to do a project with in six months. Some of the work is what you're doing right now in campaigning. Um, you mean that they're work for the for the honorees, for the attendees. That's right. Yeah, it's part of the job. And not just the bold face names, but, you know, the executives, the producers, the publicists, the stylists. It's work all around. Absolutely. You know, everybody in
2: the industry knows that every social occasion is loaded, pun intended, because you're always trying to meet people, make connections with people… Not necessarily to set up your next project, but to set up the one that's sort of seven down the road or that when you have a gap, you can call somebody
1: and maybe put something together. Everybody's always hustling. And everybody's always watching. Like, of course, I'm going to go straight to the styling because um, I think about when you're an actor, you show up, obviously they'll never admit to it, but they care about what the write-ups are, the coverage. Oh, Like what list I made, what list I didn't make. And they remember, oh, I saw that look on the carpet. Who is that person working with? Yeah, for sure. Right? Who, even down to like, um, yes, stylists, makeup artists, hairstylists, all that. But even down to, one of my favorite stories is one A-list celebrity asking another, hey, like where'd you get your eyes done? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you recommend the doctor? Right. And that's… All that happens on the red carpet. Of course. And, and you know,
2: because this is where everybody's together. Everybody's sharing that information ad hoc or not sharing it through their day, at, day to day. But yeah, this is sort of the great equalizer where everybody's in the same room. It's a high school dance, essentially. The, so yes, there are all kinds of work shenanigans going on. You mentioned stylists, and I find it really interesting because obviously we've talked about stylists through awards season and so forth, but we are, as of this airing, we're two days out from the Globes, and the arguable surprise win, certainly Glenn Close is a surprise win, and uh, Olivia Coleman was not, uh, like she was favored, but not necessarily like the front front, Right. What does that do to stylists' game? Who do we think has been knocked out who was maybe going to be a big carpet contender this season who now doesn't look so
1: favorable? Well, that's a really interesting question and I'm going to layer it with another question or mm. like a little… another little good nugget. We're like an Escher painting of questions. <laughs> so um, Rami Malek won Best Actor in a Drama… He won over Bradley Cooper. They have the same stylist. Uh-huh. So, it's all those intricate—it's all those intricacies, like, you know, how many horses you have in a race if you're a stylist? One, like, loses ground. Uh, one gains ground. How do you manage the options? I mean, a stylist will say everybody's an individual and one look is not going to be for the other. And yet… If your leader is going to surge, that's the spotlight, right? I mean,
2: hundred percent. But I'm going to be real cynical here. We know no man is winning or losing his award based on his style. Of course not, right? And and women, yes, sure, sure they can. Sure, a great dress can surge a uh, can surge a groundswell of voting. One thing, or create buzz. Yeah. But one thing I didn't realize is how tight the actual nomination windows are for Mm -hmm. some of these awards. It's based on the whim of how you're feeling that week. Yeah. If you don't get to see one thing, then that person's out of the game. If you like their dress, you put in that screener that night. Yeah. Um, if you're feeling a little grumpy and constipated and it's, uh, you know, it reminds you of a situation with your ex, then you're you're anti that person that week.
1: Yeah. So it's highs and lows. But I think that… I love that point that you just made about, hey, I saw them at the Globes. Uh wow, what a great, like, interesting outfit. Let me pop in the screener. Right. That's exactly
2: how it works. That's right, because I have the time. Because look, everybody is… I know a lot of people who get a lot of screeners. I've had some. I'm not in the academy, but for certain things. Even though it seems like a big treat to get all these free movies and things, suddenly it becomes a big obligation. There's a big
1: pile, either digitally or on
2: your… Xbox or whatever. Well,
1: maybe we should kind of unpack that a little bit more for people out there who aren't familiar with the screener process.
2: So, okay. The idea is that if you are a voting member of the Academy, or even if you're not in some cases, there is some overlap that I don't fully understand where even people who are not actually eligible voters get screeners, I guess because at a certain threshold of being in the WGA or… Uh, The DGA or whatever, um, you're provided with these screeners. Yeah. So that means… It still often means a pile of DVDs. Mm -hmm. And I didn't make the comment about the Xbox idly. That's the only place we have in our house to watch DVDs anymore. Yeah, me too. Uh, We don't have a DVD player. Uh, Somebody gave us a CD recently and we were like, what do we do with this? (laughs) Yeah. But it's because they are watermarked and stamped. Yeah. And in t- to make sure that if it gets out, if it gets leaked, yeah. that they know… Trace it back to you. …who it is that's yeah. doing the leaking. Uh, and so the screeners are provided still often on disks. There are some digital ones. And yeah, you're given them… Maybe you get them over a period of a couple of months. Yeah. But you… The voting period where it's actually open where you can get on and log your votes is often really tight.
1: Well, it's often during the holidays. So a lot of the people we know who are members mm-hmm. um, have gotten or would have gotten their a lot of their screeners mid-December. Mid-December. And spent the holidays with family. Mm-hmm. You know, you a lot of, you know, a couple of people we know, for example, during the family holidays, you know, watch one a, a night. Yeah, sure. I've been the beneficiary yes, of some of those. Yes, as
2: have I. <laughs> but the… Oscar nomination voting for example mm-hmm. opens on January 7th yeah and it closes on January 14th yes it's 1 week it's 1 week yeah. when uh Johnny come lately that, that yeah. was terrible can uh can log their thoughts about
1: who should be yes. nominated and in theory Johnny has done his or her homework during the holidays Sure,
2: like, that is the theory But, okay, so now you've heard us for however long talk about the industry and how it works and all these people in the business. Look, there are good people, there are bad people, there are conscientious people, there are lazy people, there are people who leave their work to the last minute. Those are the people in charge of your nominations. This is why people buy giant ads and giant billboards. Uh They're just trying to get into your head. Pay attention to our movie, please. Mm -hmm. And this is why there's been so much uh, controversy, for example, about Widows, right which yep. has not gotten no nope. any buzz and at, it should but part of the uh part of the scuttlebutt this is what happens when i'm tired apparently i only have <laughs> slang from like the 40s uh part of the scuttlebutt or the rumor is that there weren't screeners sent out or that people aren't aware of it in some way or other that it's not reaching them and it's not for lack of notoriety, I suppose, but something's going on such that people aren't getting access to widows in the same way as, say, oh, I don't know, Bohemian
1: Rhapsody. Yeah. But to your point, it all converges, right? In theory, they have the screeners, the Golden Globes come around, they see something during the show that intrigues them, they might pop in the screener the next day, when nomination like opens or voting for nominations opens… They watch it. They're like, I really like this one. Mm-hmm. And I can watch like, the other ones, but I like this one. Yeah. Look, nobody wants to be left
2: out of a groundswell of a thing, right? Yeah. You want to be the one who's like, oh, I knew that this was happening. Yes. I saw it and I thought it was so great. You want to be yes. in on those discussions where people are like, oh, it's got to go to so and so. So you watch the ones that feel like they're important. Correct. And if there's an upset, like Glenn Close with the wife then all of a sudden a whole bunch of people are going to pop that in this week, which is why you said on the site that essentially her speech uh, was her Oscar campaign. Oh,
1: it was, yeah.
2: It was her coming for it. Right. Because she has that opportunity Mm -hmm. with that surprise win. Uh, And to snap into that… I mean, look, we have made fun of Taylor Swift and others for decades about, you know, faux surprise and whether or not you think it's going to be yours… She was surprised. Oh, she was surprised. She had no clue that was coming. Because she had no momentum going in. But then… So to have that surprise and that shock… And we've seen a million speeches. What happens when people are shocked, right? Yeah. So then to snap into that campaign
1: mode Uh so quickly… That's, I mean, that's decades of experience. And it's not to say that it wasn't heartfelt and authentic, the things that she said. Of course it was. No. it can be both. I don't mean it's, uh, no, of course not. It's not that it's not calculated,
2: but it's the other way of putting it is you have one shot to tell all these people what you want to tell them. Do not miss. Exactly right? Like, come and do exactly what you need to do in this 45 seconds or whatever and it is you have. And some
1: people miss. A
2: lot of people miss. Right?
1: Like, and that's that's the fun of it. That's why we watch the work. You know, some people get up there and it's, um, uh, my lawyer, uh, uh, and it's over. And you're like, you squandered that opportunity. You didn't do anything.
2: And it's… Yes. Every, look, everybody wants to be thanked. I, when you win an award, I expect to be in your speech. That said… <laughs> Everybody reads a list of names. The people we remember are Mm -hmm. the people who do something else. Uh, You know what I… All right, all right, all right. That's that one. I always think still about uh, Gina Rodriguez. I can and I will. Yes. And then saying, dad, I can and I did. Yeah. It still can be personal. It still can be, you know, heartfelt. But it's also about saying a thing in those few moments.
1: Yep. And who, Who? I mean, to use another sports analogy, because we're kind of circling around it, who steps up to the plate Well, and I have delivers? Pro-
2: I have a problem with that analogy. Doesn't everybody step up to the plate by definition? Well, who steps up to the plate and delivers instead of striking out? Well, there. fine. But then shouldn't it be like who cracks it? Like, come on, sports. You've had <laughs> generations to get this right. So you wiggled out of my question a bit. Oh, we talked about who might have been a uh, kind of a front runner who ah. now is less so and who's still in the game. Uh and it does kind of seem up in the air, right? Oh yeah.
1: There's maybe one sure thing. Uh, I hmm I don't even know if there's one sure thing. Like In the major categories? Yeah. Like, when
2: I say a sure thing, I mean somebody who's going to be around all the way through. Nobody knows what's going to happen on Oscar night. Right. But somebody who's going to be a player. Some years, if it's an Emma Stone year, I'm just going to say it, except for last year when she was out early. Uh, Some years, if it's an Emma Stone year, generally speaking, she's going to be in the mix all the way to the end. If it's a Jennifer Lawrence year, uh, she's going to be in the mix all the way to the end. Curiously, if it's a Maggie Gyllenhaal year, I feel like she is often in the mix all the way to the end. Never wins, but always there.
1: And so you're asking who is that person?
2: Yeah. Who do we think is somebody or several somebodies who's going to ride all the way there? Well, I think Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga will ride all the way there. I… shake my head at you coupling them because I think he is different than she. And I think the problem for him, I'm just saying it, Bradley Cooper, you heard it here, uncouple. You did some work in terms of directing and writing. If you take away the work of ingenuing, then maybe you'd have more of a chance. But she does not have… I don't think she has the support of the
1: people and I think it's going to hurt him as a result. I think it was clear yesterday that she wasn't as strong of a frontrunner as we thought. And so I think the actress race is wide open. Definitely Glenn Close is in. Olivia Colman is in. Lady Gaga is in. But I do think anyone can come in and take it. Emily Blunt could come in and take it. Well, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, people like Mary Poppins
2: Returns. People like Emily Blunt as a personality. I feel like there are enough people who, it's not to say they're excluding other people, but if they watch one movie, or if they don't watch one movie and just sort of scoot her through on the basis of Q factor, I think it's Emily Blunt who's going to
1: kind of get there based on… Oh, yeah. She's already through to the Critics' Choice. She's already through to the SAGs. She'll be through to the BAFTAs. I mean, come on. It's Mary Poppins Returns. (laughs)
2: Exactly. And the
1: BAFTAs, as we know,
2: is a bastion of very, very important cinema. Yeah. Let's not forget
1: Paddington 2. Thank you. <laughs> yes. You and… It's your one the one-year anniversary of you and Hugh Grant. It really is. Congratulations. <sighs> Thank you. Um, so, yes. Emily Blunt. I, I fully will be shocked if Emily Blunt's name isn't called for Oscar nominations. Absolutely. So…
2: Knowing that, and she knows on some level, I remember distinctly last year on the Monday after the Oscars, reading one of those post-party wrap-up conversations, and they were talking then. They were talking last March about Mary Poppins' returns, and they were hoping it was going to get a best picture nod. Mm -hmm. That was a year ago. Yeah. So it's certainly been in the
1: works. And let's be honest, she's working. Well, it's been in the works for her, we now know, for a decade. Like, this has been a strategic game plan, step by step by step.
2: Lay that out for us, because I'm not sure if I have a decade to lay in here.
1: Well, I'm going to refer to the, as you mentioned, the Hollywood Reporter joint interview between Emily Blunt and John Krasinski that you said you're obsessed with, as am I. Mm Mm-hmm. And… It's quite clear to me, at least, in reading that joint interview, that she had a long game, you know, 10 years ago, Devil Wears Prada, and then the moves that she made step by step by step. I hate to tell you, but Devil Wears Prada was a lot more than 10 years ago. What was it? Okay. I think it's 15. Oh, right. Then it goes even further back. Oh, my God. It goes even further back. And what I'm saying is… And you can tell in what she's saying and what other people about her say. She's ready now. It's been timed and calibrated to be arriving at this place in her career, carrying a movie, carrying the kind of movie that comes with so many expectations like Mary Poppins Returns, in her mid 30s once she's established as you said a popularity and a cue factor within the business within the industry with the audience to strike now but i guess i'm going to be a little bit of a devil's
2: advocate because when oh, you say of course you will but i think it's worth it because when you say oh it's been in the works for a decade you mean sort of her ascendancy it's been in the works for a decade. It's been in the works for 15 years. On some level, 10 or 15 years ago, it's, well, I, I'll wait till I'm ready to helm uh, an Oscar-bait movie. is sort of what you're, you're, I'm paraphrasing your intuition of her dreams, right? But here's the thing. That's everybody's dream uh, 10 to 15 years in the future. So the question is not about… Sort of, I guess the thing is what makes her different from everybody else who has that dream. And I think that's part of what this article is about. That she's willing to say it. Ooh. Oh, that's not what I thought you were
1: going to say and I really like that. Okay, go on. That she's willing to say it. You know, you're right that by and large that's the dream and the path for everyone, but when they describe it, it's… I just wanted to work with this director. I wanted to learn from this person. Um, I just landed here because, you know, it was such a great script and part that I couldn't turn down. In this Hollywood Reporter article, there is… I mean, it's not like… I'm not dictating it from her, but there is a, oh no, I did the action with Tom Cruise because. I needed to make sure that I'm well so well-rounded that you can't find a flaw in the Emily Blunt armoir. Hmm. She can do action, she can do comedy, she can do rom-com, she can do um, you know, dark girl on the train. Mm-hmm. And she can do children's, and then she can do horror. In the same year, 2018, Emily Blunt. Did a movie that is considered horror thriller to open, like, the year, A Quiet Place. Well, we'll get there because it's it's not just a movie, yeah. but yes. And closed it with, like, sunshine and rainbows. Right. It's… You're right. It is the kind of
2: breadth and sort of, uh, yeah, depth that we
1: have seen in… Only a few, only a few people. Not, not very many. So she's done the action. I've listed all the other things. Also, she's done the girl movies. Mm-hmm. I can do the Devil Wears Prada. I can do the Huntsman, Winter's War, and play nice with other women. I can be in ensembles uh, with women. Like, it is… Well, don't forget, into the woods, are you know? Like, exactly. Those are, like, I can
2: sing. But I think those are almost more important. Holiday movies… Uh, uh, wide appeal movies are the movies that people see with their families. Those are the screeners that people watch maybe three, four, five years ago and go, oh, yeah, that girl. I like that girl. So that when the movie comes, they feel familiar. They know her. People also like to watch movie stars as opposed to when it's a new person. You know, there yeah. have been… sometimes there's a breakthrough. Uh, often there's a breakthrough nomination uh, that doesn't turn into an Oscar win. Uh, this is not the defining one, but I often think of Maria Full of Grace, uh, Catalina Sandino Moreno. Mm-hmm. Remember? Oh, yeah. She was a a new face, mm-hmm. and she was a new and exciting enough face to get to the nomination, but it didn't turn her into a movie star. No. Uh she didn't win the Oscar and it didn't turn her into a like a Hollywood boldface name. She worked, she was on um the affair, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it's those people. It's a different thing, as you say, to grow it step by step and
1: to cover all your bases. Well, and you landed on the two magic words, movie star. Mm-hmm. I wanna be an actor. I just wanna, you know, play interesting characters. I want to inhabit people. Oh no no. Emily Blunt made a bold declaration. I mean, this was this Hollywood Reporter interview was basically, hey, the arrival of Emily Blunt, comma, movie star. See, it's so interesting that you say that,
2: because that is not how I characterized this article at all. And I think it the end result is the same. But to me, the headline of this article is Emily Blunt and John Krasinski are the, they're the love match and the creative match.
1: Well, I mean, like it's they're also… they're neck and
2: necking each other. Sure. It's also heralding a new power couple. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, you know, power couple is interesting because they don't often, like… It, Often those power couples are made on a set. Those are often people who meet on a set and have, like, big talent boners for one another and then wind up as a romantic couple. Yeah. And this is not… Right? They were a… You know, they were dating. There's all kinds of flirtatiousness in here about, should we tell them the story of of the first night? No, we shouldn't tell them the story. And, like, in a way that is clear that they're not talking about sex. They're talking about something much more like… Uh, dreamy and spiritual and whatever that happened. Um, But then the creative came, like the creative partnership came later, came late, right? Yeah. Like this story at the beginning, I'm just going to get real. Do you believe this story? Here's the story as presented in the top of the article. It says that on a plane, she read A Quiet Place. That was John Krasinski wrote the script. And that she was reading it ostensibly to give him notes or whatever, and that she just became so overcome by the lead female role that she had to play it. And she demanded that he not give it to anybody else. Right. And meanwhile, he had secretly written it with her in mind, but he knew that she would never do his movie because they had such rules Uh about what they would do with one another and keeping their personal and professional lives separate. But this movie was so overwhelmingly brilliant, so wonderful, (laughs) it did so much for both of them that they overrode both those rules. They broke the rules. They did. They worked together and came together in a cataclysmic creativity… Cocoon. Boom. (laughs) Um, And like now they're just on a shooting star. Yeah.
1: Now we have to have a cigarette. Basically. Yeah. But that, yeah, that's how they lay it out at the beginning of this article. I don't believe it word for word. I don't believe
2: any of it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe it word for word. I believe there may have been something lying around. Hey, what are you working on? Oh, okay, let me know when you have more. And oh, how's it it going now? Oh, I think it's looking a lot better. Would you, you know, think about doing it? Yeah, yeah, well, we'll see. And on and on. I don't think it's as romantic and as, you know, you just basically wrote or dictated a romance novel.
2: But it's right there on yeah. the page. And yeah. that's what they're selling. Like you said the most important words were movie star uh-huh. and they're selling you a Hollywood legend. Of course. In this in this piece. This is here. what
1: I'm saying about this article. This is like to me, this article, there was so much to unpack. I was like, oh my God, this is so juicy. And You know, let's also not forget that in our first season, the first season of this show, we talked about them when a quiet place was announced. That's right, we did. We said, "Oh, they've never worked together." We expressed some what? It's the word trepidation. Yeah, that's
2: a Uh good way to put it. Yeah, that. Oh, I don't know about this. This is yeah. And then look what's happened. They knew better than us. They knew better than us.
1: But I think that we were. Looking at the situation through those romantic goggles, the fucking tone of voice that you just used. Or, or, uh, sure, we were looking at the relationship, Mm -hmm. is what you mean. We weren't… we weren't approaching it pragmatically. Like, there is… the way they've sold it here is all romance, Mm -hmm. as you said. What they've taken out is the pragmatism. That's not sexy. To us it is. I mean, that's why we have this show, but… Again, that's not how you sell a Hollywood movie with Stardust and Sprinkles.
2: Right. Like, for example, uh, oh, they broke the rules to make this movie. Mm -hmm. Nowhere in this article are the stories of the movies they almost did together, but the financing fell apart. Or the one that she said to him, you know what, I want to, but the script just isn't there and they didn't speak to each other except through the children for two weeks. I don't know this to be a fact. I'm just saying it could be… that it happened. Yeah. They sell it like there's a one and only. Yeah. And look what magic. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, I have read A Quiet Place as in script form. And I I know I've said often that I read scripts Um, and sometimes I do that in lieu of watching the movie. But I'm glad that I read A Quiet Place because it's a special script. Now, it's a special movie, but I mean, even before that, it was a special script. So one of the things that he did that – don't do this. If you're a young aspiring screenwriter, this is not for you. He can only get away with this because his office is basically the Chateau Marmont. But he used weird fonts and treated the script and the PDF like the physical pages in such a way as to physically evoke the feelings that you were supposed to have in the movie. Have you seen it? Yeah. Because there's no dialogue, because we don't know what's going on, he needed to bring out in the reader Mm -hmm. uh, what they would be feeling. It's a much more important script read than things where you're flipping by going like, okay, okay, they hate each other on page 10. Okay, by 25, she secretly likes him. So he physically manipulated the, the text on the page uh, make it big or wiggly or other kinds of things that it's it's not done. Like, people are still real uptight about screenwriting rules and the way they're done, and it, what he did is not done. But I can believe that it would have been a compelling read for her because it is a compelling read more than most scripts. And I say that as somebody who likes reading scripts.
1: Right. So have did you read it first and then see it? That's right. Okay. So then after you read it and mm-hmm. then you went to go see it, yeah. what was the effect?
2: Uh, I mean, obviously I I knew sort of what was coming, but I was I was excited because I had it was a lot more like reading a book, uh, because I had fully realized ideas of the of the sentiments, but they can't, you know, it's they don't have line reads. I'm relying on them and when, on them. I'm relying on her, mm-hmm. really, to to have that fear and tension and and desperation on her face. Um, I, so I liked it actually. I liked knowing that that's where we were going, and I felt like she was there for sure. Like it was everything I thought the movie would be. I, it's it's a triumph, no question. It's a great partnership. It's a great pairing. Um, but it's, yeah, it's interesting to, to see the bits of stitches.
1: And I think that, again, like, the bits of stitches is not what we're seeing in this article. Well,
2: no, if I may pat us on the back, that's why we do this, because we can read the article and see the stitches a little bit and see the, the things that go together and to know what it takes for, people who work on on a script together on a on a movie together to work together it's a very intimate process even if you aren't married if you never see each other if you don't even like each other there's still a real deep intimacy that's what Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga have been selling all this time in award season to the exact opposite effect right Like, Emily and John are doing what Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga can't do. They keep telling us it was magic, and they, like, work together, and he's improvising to get the love and the shock on her face, and it all feels so mechanical. And these guys are just better at it. They're selling us a better story. It helps that they're married with two little children. It helps that they are generally likable and, you know, hang out with Jimmy Kimmel and… and. Mess around, but they're selling us a better game. What was
1: was there a
2: part that stood out to you of it, this article? Several. Um, the one that stood out to me, the one that really punched me in the gut, is that she said that she called his agent.
1: You stole mine. <laughs> well, yes, obviously,
2: because what else are you going to say?
1: Yeah. Uh, So, it
2: says… I can't remember the exact mechanics, but basically he was… I have it. Please. Okay. (laughs) Ready?
1: Ready. Krasinski, who is from an upper-class Boston family, upper-middle-class Boston family… I gotta interject for a
2: second. Everybody who's upper middle class tries to paper over it and call themselves middle class. So if they're saying he's an upper middle class… He's upper class? That's what I'm getting Okay.
1: All right. Krasinski, who is from an upper middle class, wink, wink, Boston family, clearly believes he is married up and enjoys sharing the detail that London-born Blunt has never seen his signature role in the American version of the office, or had never seen his signature role in the office when they met but was a fan of the British version. Blunt responds to her husband's self-deprecation by being a tender cheerleader for him and his career. She has called his agent to offer advice unbeknownst to Krasinski and pulled her husband out of an eight-hour writing haze to remind him to eat.
2: Now, if we go backwards through that paragraph, Uh have you ever pulled your husband out of a haze to remind him to eat? Yes. Sure, right? Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. You, you see somebody and you're like, hey, be a human. Yeah. Do things. Stop yeah. the whatever. Sure. Yeah. Um, fine.
1: That's a marriage thing. And you know what? That triggers my like if you've seen the RBG doc, mm-hmm. that's what Marty, her husband, Martin, uh-huh, would do. He would have to remind Ruth to eat. He would have to. Go into her room office at one o'clock in the morning. And be like, it's time to sleep now. Then she'd work until four, right? And <laughs> I, I think we like
2: those those stories because we've been there. And one of the things I I like about about being married to the person I'm married to is that we both have those moments. You know, uh, of course, it's not like Hollywood either. Always, of course, the reality is like, can you just stop now, please? Can yeah. you just come on, <laughs> do something else? Yeah. Anyway, that feels real calls his agent Uh unbeknownst to him. Yes. That's tough for me. A tender cheerleader. An agent relationship or a manager relationship is very, very personal. That doesn't mean intimate. Some people have great relationships with their agents. Some people have poor ones or they talk all the time to their manager or not their agent or whatever. It's personal is a great word. It's, it is singular. It's between you and the other person. Yeah, because you are partners in your career. And yes. I get that when you're married to somebody, their career is sort of necessarily your business in as much as their well-being and their creative fulfillment is going to affect your home life, right? Like, choices that they make affect you in a in a ricochet kind of way. Like, I live it on both all the time. Yeah. But… That, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I don't use these words often, but that feels like a violation to me to call his agent. And I don't love that it's being, it's being kind of presented as, te- what did you say, tender care? Tender cheerleader. I mean, tender is just a gross word. Gross. Like, people love to talk about… I hate the word Moist in panties, but yeah. tender is like, it's hard not to be a yeah. douche when you're saying tender. Yeah. um Because what can she say? Would you steer him this way a bit? Why are you doing that? Are you doing that to be like that stereotype of an old wife who's like, oh, you have to let him think it's his idea? Or is she trying to say, look, you're you're pushing him in the wrong direction. He really wants this and you don't see him as an auteur and he… stop sending him scripts for The Office
1: or whatever. Like, what's the end game? I don't know. But like, this to me was… that's why this article was so delicious because… <sighs> Her drive, her ambition, her planning, her strategy really comes through.
2: Yeah, it's um, it really does. And I think that it, the context about calling his agent, I thought too that there was a point where she was calling specifically to talk about whether or not he was going to direct this movie as well as write it. I may have conflated two things. Uh, but I think that, you know, when he handed this script to his agents, then he said, oh, and I need to direct it. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. John, Johnny, baby. Um,
1: <laughs> baby.
2: And Bro. so I, I wonder whether she was, uh, you know, brokering some of that for him also. Because here's the other part of it. You know, I keep, I listen to that tender care and calling his agents and I'm deep in a Mad Men rewatch right now. Yeah. And there's some of that. You know, you see, like, Betty talks to Roger or so-and-so might call each other. Listen, Peter is very overworked. Allison Brie is excellent on that show. But the difference is, of course, those are housewives making those calls Mm -hmm. or making those comments. Emily Blunt is… Are we doing this? Is she more powerful than
1: him? Or was she? Well, two things. First of all, this is clearly a sanction piece, right? Publicists set this up, there was a purpose to it, came out in December, they're campaigning, number one. Number two, as we glean from this article, she's bright. Oh, yeah. She's smart as fuck. Mm-hmm. So she's not dropping any information inadvertently. No. Every Yes, absolutely. So the fact that this detail made it in, where are we going with that? To answer your question, like, is she the power in the relationship? Is she, like, the boss? Well, it's helpful to them if that's the
2: narrative, right? He's the slightly bumbling, winsome creative, and she is the caring woman who, even though she cares about show business… She's not calculating. She cares first about her husband and his career, and she cares about him. Mm-hmm. That's where her focus is, right? Right. It makes her not so mercenary. It makes her not so self-focused. Ambitious, that dirty word. Dirty word. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because the other narrative in here is uh, that he talks about how he was flying back and forth to uh, from Montreal to be with the family because he was shooting Jack Ryan… Uh, he was flying from Montreal to London Yeah, she was doing… Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins,
1: yeah. which I think Mary Poppins took a year. Like, uh, it was long between rehearsals and she made them wait for her because right. she had just given birth, I think, or, you know, she needed some time.
2: But let's examine that statement, though. He was flying back and forth mm-hmm. from Montreal to be with the family, right? Yeah. Um, oh, I couldn't be apart from my family, blah, blah, blah. Great. Um, or… You know, there's another narrative there that could be like, well, why wouldn't she be with him? Why wouldn't she, you know, be in Montreal with him? Obviously, like they have all the money in the world, it's fine, whatever. And she made them wait, as you say. Yeah. So in theory, she could make them wait until he was done. Um, but what w- he plays it like, I'm such a devoted husband. I was so, it was so good of her to let me go and do that, mm-hmm. as opposed to, I was the one schlepping because my wife was on the bigger movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the other side of that narrative. Yeah. It's it's really interesting that he gets to play it like Mr. Power Player, not least because that's what you need for Jack Ryan. That's yeah. who that character is, right? But yeah, she was calling… I don't want to say she was calling the shots, and I don't want to get into the situation of constructing like a… like a dictating Herod and wife. No. That's not what I mean. Her career was calling the shots. Her yes. career was in the front mm-hmm. spot. And so their moves were made based on servicing her career first and his career, including his performance on the set or whatever,
1: Yeah,
2: uh, had to accommodate that travel.
1: Totally. I mean, we're only talking about this because we find this fascinating and sexy as fuck, like this kind of dual career. I mean, this is the key, right? Like it says here, "quote professionally, Blunt and Krasinski have risen on roughly similar timelines from their breakout roles. He as deadpan everyman Jim Halpert on The Office. She is Meryl Streep's wicked scene-stealing assistant in The Devil Wears Prada. So, it's when when I when I romanticize it, it's two people who meet at the same point, or we're being told at the same point in their career, and together they say." How are we going to rise together? What is our game plan? Let's put this business plan down. And before we go any further, that's hard. Mm -hmm. That is a hard thing to
2: do for any two people, let alone in this business. Like, let alone in this toxic, crazy-ass industry of back and forth. That is a hard thing to do. So… Yeah, the fact that they are here and talking about it and talking about how they do it, especially, I have to say this, and I think this is going to come up later, especially with children. I have uh, friends, I have a lot of friends who both work in, in the television industry and they handle it in different ways, but what it often amounts to in one form or another is somebody leads and then falls back, and the other person leads and then falls back. Like, they can have their career and their family, but not at the same time. There are seasons of one working more and the other being more at home and then Mm -hmm. switching places.
1: Well, we hear about this Hollywood style all the time. We never work at the same time. Right. Which is… It
2: sounds really bloody nice, right? Like, oh, you never work at the same time? But it's also a reality because if this is your life, you will wind up not being married if you are working at the same time. It's just, it's just logistics. People are close by way of proximity. So what has to happen for the investment in this article to pay off? So the other side of what you've said, this is, uh, you know, this was sanctioned, this is campaign this is whatever so it's a calculated risk right mm-hmm. so what's
1: the payoff from this article well there's a like well there's a short range goal mm-hmm. award season That's right. a quiet place mary poppins returns nominations for both together, riding this award season together, mm-hmm. like, also doesn't happen, right? A married couple in Hollywood, they get to, like, have projects that they did together and independently that go on to, like, be nominated together. Has they- that ever happened? Like, if… She, what we're talking about in real basic terms
2: is she could be nominated for Mary Poppins mm-hmm. and maybe Mary Poppins is nominated for Best Picture. Yep. While at the same time, yes. he can be nominated for A Quiet Place, say. Yes. And, and both of them are nominated for acting in The Quiet Place. I mean, that's the motherlode. Yes. Because to me, I feel like uh, her… I feel like those two acting nominations would cancel each other
1: out, right? Well, sure. And yet, I think it's at the Screen Actors Guild where they have nominated her for supporting for A Quiet Place and lead for Mary Poppins Returns. Yeah, that's that's something. So that's, that's him too,
2: right? Like, yeah, of course. I mean, he's yes, he's the creator and the director. Yes, and then you have the speech, right? My husband, my director. Thank you. Yeah, it's
1: absolutely. And the Producers Guild nominations are out. Now, at the Producers Guild A Quiet Place is among the ten best films of the year. Mary Poppins did not make the cut. But if you think about all the precursors to Oscars, the PGA, the Directors Guild, the SAG, all the guilds, they're good precursors. There could be a shakeout. It's mathematically possible for A Quiet Place and Mary Poppins to both be nominated for Best Picture, for uh, Emily Blunt to be nominated for acting in Mary Poppins Returns. And for obviously John Krasinski to have one or two nominations for producing *A Quiet Place* and producing, whatever. directing, writing screenplay. Right, that's right. He's nominated for the
2: Critics' Choice this weekend, uh, for best screenplay with his two co-writers, and of course she's nominated for best actress. Um, so yeah, that's a night. This is
1: a big night for both of you. That's right. And so, to your question, has this ever happened before? I think. On a smaller scale, I think, like, for example, Brad Pitt has been nominated for acting in one movie, and Angelina Jolie has been nominated for acting in another movie, but, like, do the tentacles and, like, it wasn't the same movie. They didn't act in the same movie. Like, it's… Right. It was more of a confluence than engineered. This is… Yeah. This is rare.
2: So, fine. Short-term awards, awards season, Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of situations that could spell the short-term as a win.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What's the long game? The long game is like more of this, right? He has finally um, established himself as an auteur. Mm-hmm. Auteur. And uh, for the initiative, if you want to go
2: digging, John Krasinski has a history of projects that are interesting and quirky and don't do well even though people are like… they they have noble ambitions. The yeah. one that comes to mind is Brief Interviews with Hideous Men mm-hmm. is a David Foster Wallace book uh, of short stories, basically, yeah. that he tried to adapt into a film and like did and it played like art houses in Austin and yeah. whatnot, but it wasn't like… it didn't put him on the map. No. And he's had others that I should know that are a little more mainstream, yeah. but you're right. He is trying to become… That person, right? Yeah. He's trying to become God. I don't know Baz Luhrmann, like yeah. that
1: sort of brand. Like you want another a quiet place, exactly. You want two more in production mm-hmm. together, and she's going to do her like big acting movies and like obviously her movie star shit. But together, it's a production powerhouse, right? And he's going to become Clooney. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert at old Hollywood, but. I mean, the model that if we had to pick one from those way back olden days would be like Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. That's
2: a deep cut. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Um, like, weren't they a power couple and they like had a studio? I think that's entirely accurate. I think too, like, they were, she
2: was the biggest deal going at the time, you know? So it was, it was convenient. Like, yeah, let's make these movies. You're here and you're the one. So, yeah, absolutely. It's It'll be interesting to watch it play out because the other side of it that you always talk about is what you sell, right? If you're on the carpet together, then they're going to ask questions about the kids, you'll notice there's no mention of the children in this article, even though it's like 3,000 words. Mm-hmm. They exist. Yeah. And I think maybe they print their ages and names. They don't make a – press, like, they don't make an appearance. They do not make an appearance. Yeah. There are no stories or anecdotes no. about them. As opposed to, say, uh, I don't know, Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard or Julia Roberts even, right? Julia Roberts has all kinds of kid anecdotes. That's part of her brand. Yeah. These guys
1: are not selling kid anecdotes. No. At all. Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, I'm telling you. What? did they have kids? (laughs) No. Like, I think that it's… Their plans, I mean, if I want to dream for them, these ambitions are big. Well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they are because,
2: you know, everybody and their brother has a production company. That's not that big. Everybody is a producer of a movie. Like, you can do that and not be this level. Even the the portraits of… that th- are included in this article. I really hope that you guys look at them because they are… They're stompers.
1: Explain like, that term for me. Like, it's… you know, it is strides. It is matching strides. That, the the one shot that's my favorite is the one where they're on fucking a rooftop or oh, something. Oh, yeah. And, and she's they're... in a dress that you're like, what is that dress? Exactly. And, yeah. and his armor's around her and they're walking in stride. Like, it's a stomp. Well… Yeah, um, but it doesn't, but it's not a
2: stomp, like, it's not determined. They're both looking off into the distance at a dream. Uh Uh-huh. And the reason that I bring that up is because what these photos feel to me more than anything else, and, you know, I'm influenced maybe by uh, some of the bio information about him, but
1: these feel like political campaign photos. Yes. Yes right? Yes. And I… totally. I was… five minutes ago, I had a thought about political power couples. And I was going to, like, ask you to compare and contrast. And 100% you hit it. This is what this feels like. It's Mm Kennedy-esque.
2: It's windblown, but they're in love. They're the only two people in their world. So, you know, maybe the aspirations go bigger than big
1: even. Like… Sky's the limit, right? Yeah. Going to be interesting. One final thing I want to ask you, because I don't know if I've imagined it, but in this award season, as I've watched her, I've tried to watch as many clips as possible. I love her. Like, we have a… Like, I mean, Emily Blunt is one of those people where, like, over… As long as I've known you, you and I have cared. Absolutely. Look,
2: I am uh, a bit shamefaced right now because uh, as we record this podcast, we are uh, coming off the Golden Globes where I may have named her my worst dressed. That's fine. Um, You don't have to like her dress. Well, no, but I'm saying, but my worst dressed, meaning that, yeah, because I like her, because I watch and know what she can do, and I'm looking at this dress in this like political picture, uh, that it didn't get there for me.
1: But anyway, yes, watch. So I watched… I I feel like I know what she sounds like and Mm -hmm. have known what she sounds like over the years. During this particular Oscar campaign where she's campaigning for Mary Poppins, Mm -hmm. have you noticed that her English accent is stronger than usual? It's so interesting that you say that because I was
2: reading uh, today about… remember a couple of years ago when Saoirse Ronan was nominated for Brooklyn? And uh, this was the conversation about her that she plays an Irish immigrant in Brooklyn and is Irish herself, and that her Irishness was was coming out more prominently, or uh, if you're being derisive, more shamrocky, as they said, like people, you know, there's okay, an, yeah. there's having an Irish accent, and then there's being, you know, Patty O'Shea a bit. <laughs> and okay. I think people were feeling that she was veering more in that direction. I I don't know. It's maybe. I mean, she's British obviously. She is obviously British and spent a year back there, mm-hmm. right? Like it's that thing too of of having the immersion yeah. be part of it and necessarily a lot of the crew is going to be like uh Lynn Manuel Miranda would have been the yeah. the lone yank on the set. Right. Um again, I'm back in the 40s <laughs> like uh, get your hot dogs. I don't know what's happening to me. <laughs> So I can see it for sure. And like it's, you know, there might be times where it would not be an asset for the accent to come out, right? So but I'm this never is mad fine. at
1: using whatever you have. Right. And again, to be clear, we're only doing this because we're, I mean, I love her.
2: Oh, I uh, yeah, and no, absolutely. But I guess what I'm, my response to you is I I'm not sure I think it's like, oh, she's pulling it out to use it as much as it is oh, this is a situation and a time where she doesn't have to shove it down. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel as though if… and without getting into too much, like, class forensics, I feel like she might be a bit posh also. Mm. And I'm not sure if that poshness plays when you are, like, post-it noting Jimmy Kimmel's car. Like, I feel like that's when you want to tuck a bit of the English away a little bit. Like, it doesn't play as well or downplay it. So it's, I feel like this is a place where it's allowed to come out and play.
1: Okay, well, we'll see. Critics' Choice, SAGs, BAFTAs, possibly Oscars. Yeah, here we go. Two months of the Krasinski or Blunt Krasinski Partnership. Let us know what you think.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
1: Okay, well, staying with award season and award season nominees, one of the television favorites did not win at the Golden Globes, Bill Hader. Bill Hader for Barry. Bill Hader for Barry won the Emmy, mm-hmm. won the Emmy for acting. Uh, Henry Winkler, I think, won for supporting at the Emmys. And um, did win for show? Uh, you know what? So Bill Amazel Hader
2: and Barry… Uh, were nominated in four categories uh, against Donald Glover and Atlanta in the same four categories. Like they were each nominated for like best series, best directing, best writing of a given episode, and acting uh, as their title characters or lead characters. Uh, And I think, uh, yeah, I'd have to see what what the actual… So yeah, Bill Hader won… Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series, Henry Winkler won for Supporting. He was nominated for Outstanding Directing and Outstanding Writing, as well as Outstanding Comedy Series. Like, there were a lot of nominations for Barry.
1: Yeah. Uh, So, five nominations, two wins in last September. And then at the Golden Globes, um, didn't win, but nominated for Critics' Choice and also nominated for SAG. So Bill Hader, during award season, was featured in Variety. I read this interview. I immediately sent it to you. I was like, holy shit, we have to do this and show your work.
2: Because, you know, it's not always the case that we would do sort of two magazine profiles back to back, but they couldn't be more different. Would you agree with that?
1: I mean, you're right. They couldn't be more different, and yet we can link the two. Oh, easily we right? can link the two. Do you see but what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, but we can talk about anything. Um, but there is a, like, a defined link here.
2: That said, these are two radically different approaches to being profiled, and the people who come off the page are totally different.
1: Totally. Like, we got the… in The Hollywood Reporter with the Blunt-Krasinski partnership, it was… You use the word, like, this is what they're selling us. I don't know that there's a sale here with Bill Hader. Uh, this is not a sale.
2: This is a confession. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, listen, of course, both interviews would have been set up by publicists, both in service of award season and, you know, this time of, of getting out there, getting your work out there, being read. But the… Sort of, I you know, with taking the dirtiness, if there is any dirtiness, um, out of the word calculation, there there doesn't seem to be any calculation. No, and I just kind of want to jump in with a quote,
2: because this is the best way I can explain to you all the tone here. Bill Hader says, There were people who saw the pilot of Barry who were like, What are you doing? Hader says. Friends of mine in comedy and big producers, I asked for notes and it was like, no, man, you can't do that with this. We had a screening of the first four episodes for a bunch of people and it was a bit, what the fuck is that? I just don't think it was what anybody expected. And, you know, I hope that I didn't read that with any sort of tone or ego because there's none here. This is the you know, if we were profiling two movie stars in the last article, right, golden and anointed and like creatively gifted, the other side of that, it's not an accident that Bill Hader is known to most people as a comedian because comedians are often haunted by like insecurity and demons and feeling like they can't necessarily get to that place. So… Everybody feels insecure. Everybody has projects where people say, what are you doing? But choosing to talk about it, that to me is a comedian's move.
1: Oh, 100%. And I think it comes across the most clear when he talks about his days at Saturday Night Live. A hundred percent. Right? So uh, this is… And this is not somebody who is looking back on their old job and being like, I've moved past that. They weren't good enough for me. I wasn't happy there. He wasn't happy there, but the reason why he wasn't happy there was because he is so anxious. He's an anxious, insecure person. He doubted himself every single day he was there.
2: Well, look, I would go one step further and say I think that's what Saturday Night Live is. It is 40-some-odd years old, and there's nothing like it on television. People have come and gone. People are on it. It's the legend. But the show is the same as it ever was. Lauren Michaels is like an inscrutable father slash mafia Don. Please don't kill me, Lauren Michaels. Um, people are desperate for his approval. There are many, many countless stories of people feeling insecure and scared at Saturday Night Live, even when they're there for years, even when they're super, super popular. Like him. Like Like Bill Hader. Absolutely. There are, um, you know, there's a book called Gasping for Airtime by Jay Moore, who, you know, you maybe have opinions about Jay Moore, but he is pretty earnest about writing about it. He came of age on that show for two years with Sarah Silverman and Dave Attell, and he just talks about how the relentlessness of the machine, of the weekly feeding the beast that is the show… Lends itself to that insecurity, to not knowing whether you're doing anything that's worth anything, whether anybody liked anything. Because whether yeah. it was good or it was bad, as soon as the show's over, you gotta start prepping for next week. Yeah. It's the polar opposite of like looking lovingly over scripts for a long time.
1: Well, and you know, it, that's not to say that he doesn't say that he made wonderful friendships there and that it was a family and a certain closeness. Like he does say that. So he's not shitting on the place. It's an inward reflection on, like, I was desperately, like, I I don't even want to say the word unhappy. It was that there was a tension there that had to break. It's like an inner turmoil.
2: Yeah. And I say this, guys, I've not been on Saturday Night Live, but I love it. I am a scholar of Saturday Night Live. I love the oral history of Saturday Night Live. Um, I've just now decided that you and I need to go to New York, get tickets,
1: like, get on the list and get tickets, and then do a full yeah. episode about it. I would say that you and I, like, are the same. Like, I've read those books. I've like It is… Yeah, like, I know the ins and outs of Saturday Night Live. Right. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the inner turmoil that you
2: describe that is, yeah, not because you don't have fun with people or get yeah. along with them, but it's in Shades of Tina Fey's book, arguably one of the most successful alumni… It's shades of… you see shades of it in Amy Poehler's book. It's in that oral history. It's all there that it is sort of… the turmoil is there not because of any people or anything about the show. It's just the relentlessness
1: or it's about the people it attracts, right? Who have this in them. So that, you know, that is the part that really comes out in terms of like, who he is, that comedian darkness, as you were referring to a few minutes ago. Um, and he's moved away from that. Um, and, of course, he's doing Barry now. It's a big success. HBO loves it. Like, you know, they say in this article, I think, they quote, I think they quote Casey Bloys, the head of HBO, he was saying, hey, we've got shows that are aging out now, Veep and our, like, you know, major… Primetime, well, not primetime, but, you know, major sort uh, of flagship kind of, yeah. comedies. And Barry is the heir.
2: Right. But what makes Barry so interesting to me… Have you watched it yet? Yes. Two episodes. So no, Three. There are only eight in the first season, um, and I'm not spoiling anything by saying… What we've been talking about, that inner turmoil, that like, am I anything? Am I something? That's Barry. That's the whole show. It's about that question that the character Barry is asking himself. It's about investigating, you know, why is it that I'm in a room full of people who are kind of great and kind of nice and I can't like myself? And it's more complicated than that and a lot more fun than I made it sound And it is a comedy if this is your style of comedy, but I think it's really interesting that
1: that sentiment to me is very clearly there throughout Barry as well. And obviously this is the product of however many years of detours and like pauses, um, you know, on Saturday Night Live. But I didn't know what I learned from this piece is that he almost accidentally stumbled into performing that his actual strength, like where he was always intending to go was directing and writing. Mm -hmm. Like being on camera was a thing. I think a friend of his says in this article, like he's actually a director and a writer. Like it was just a happy accident that he happened to just end up on Saturday Night Live and become a name and like a featured player, regular player. But like This is not, like, this is actually what he always intended to do, Barry. Yeah. And I think that, I think too, though, that that's unique
2: to Saturday Night Live also. It doesn't happen on any other show. Nobody on Veep is going down to the writer's room and saying, like, you, hey, you, come and and be on set. Sometimes it happens the other way that an actor is like, hey, I have some ideas for a script and whatnot, and actors can become writers. But on Saturday Night Live, I feel like anybody in the place can wind up in front of the camera behind the camera um that's a known thing in terms of uh, Colin Jost was the head writer before he was Colin Jost right uh, uh god like people are hired to be sort of 70% writers and 30% mm-hmm. featured players yeah. as you say it's a it's a fluider place so yeah that that got him to here my most interesting thing i think about this article is how naked he is still. Like you just said, HBO is like, it's great. This is our new thing. We love it. Um, and he's still talking about the negatives. Yeah. And there's something that we've never, almost never seen in an article that's already kind of self-confessional. But he writes or says, I think I saw my kids a total of five days all summer. He says, it was terrible. So I'm going next summer, I'm taking time off, and I'm going to spend every day with them. It's this weird thing where when you're in this industry, you don't have time to be with them, and it's really, really difficult. I'm getting emotional right now talking about it. And later in the conversation, he laughs. Congrats. It's the first interview
1: I've ever cried in. That's the one. That is the quote that made headlines. Like, People Magazine covered it. I think it was in page six. Like, that's the pull quote from that whole piece. We've talked about other aspects of this article. But that was the thing that kind of went everywhere. To me,
2: it's notable because we don't hear men talk like that. We don't hear men get emotional about missing their kids. Even, and maybe this is where you were going, in the previous article where John Krasinski is talking about going back and forth from Montreal to London and it was really stressful and he was tired and he never got to see the kids It's like relating a a war story. Mm -hmm. He's not crying. Mm -mm. He's not getting emotional. Yeah.
1: I was was quite floored by this. You actually said to me, you're like, I've never read. Never read A Father. Yeah. Certainly not in Hollywood. No. Right? No. Like, you know, I remember, you know, before the Johnny Depp reputation went to shit, everybody's favorite or one of the best anecdotes about him was he was shooting, like, the first Pirates movie and… He was, like, two hours late showing up for set. Mm -hmm. Okay, whatever, Johnny Depp. Like, and when he got to set, he was just like, sorry, my daughter wanted to play. Right. Do you remember this? I, a little bit now that you're mentioning
2: it, and I have to confess to the listening audience that I'm, like, grinning because
1: that anecdote made me smile. Yeah. And so you hear those things, but this is the opposite. This is, like, I didn't see my kids. I worked instead. I had everything I wanted.
2: I had all of the the glory and the acclaim, and they let me do what I wanted to do. It's very obvious when you watch Barry that they're letting him, him do what he's going to do, and it was making him miserable. He mm-hmm. missed his family. And he's still doing it.
1: And he's still doing it. And Like, he talks about he's working now on season two. That's right. And that he then plans to take the summer off to write a screenplay… <laughs> Yeah, that was great. He was like, I'm just going to write a movie
2: so they can see me whenever they want.
1: Yes, but two things. Again, he has to work to stay home. Like, he has to give himself something to do to stay home so that his kids can see him.
2: Well, do you mean that he can't just, like, actually take the time off and just be home? Yeah. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. And second point is, last summer he only saw his kids five times. He says. He says. So we are in January, and he says he'll be able to see more of his kids in the summer. That's still five months away. Yeah. I mean,
2: I guess the idea being they're in school maybe in the year, which is a true thing. Kids at the end of the day in February, it's just, you know, it's hustling them into the bath and bed and then out of bed, and it's it's not much quality time, I suppose. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's worth noting not to fully therapize here, but he also talks about he got divorced last year. So Mm -hmm. that complicates those matters, right? This is the other side of that story that I think he and his ex-wife are obviously co-parenting and partners therein, but
1: it's difficult. I I appreciate his willingness to share and to articulate his anguish. I think on a greater scale social scale, this is what we need. You mean this vulnerability from men. Sharing their heartbreak, sharing the toll that work takes on them, and the fact that, yeah, dads can miss their children too. Like, it is not the purview of moms to miss their children. Like, that is something that's weighing on him. Right.
2: And I appreciate appreciate that anguish. Huge, because I'm sitting here and I come up with A dozen kid anecdotes from parents, even working parents, even about this one topic. Shonda Rhimes says… Shonda Rhimes says in the year of yes, if your kid wants to play, drop everything and play because they only ever want to play for 10 minutes is Mm -hmm. her point. You can do anything for 10 minutes and you can explain away 10 minutes late. Yeah. That's not something that you hear from men up to this point.
1: No. So I… I I mean, I I really appreciate… I think that it's a good model… Uh huh, and um, like to encourage. Yeah, but and I've known you for a lot of years, and there's a but. It's not a but towards him. No, what I'm saying is, as I mentioned earlier, this was the poll quote that made headlines, mm-hmm. and you and I are—I live online, mm-hmm. so it made headlines. People are like, "Oh, Bill Hader cried. Mrs. Kids only saw his kid like I don't know five days out of the summer." Mm-hmm. Wasn't. Followed by judgment. No. Well, why would it be? Well, if I don't if Jennifer Garner mm-hmm. said, I only saw my kids five days this summer. I was so busy working. Oh, of course. You're saying people would say, What are you doing? Get home to your kids. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And this is now I see where you were going. Because of course, this is the narrative that John and Emily very assiduously, mm-hmm. like, worked around,
1: yeah. right? There aren't, like, angsty think pieces out there pegged to the Bill Hader crying because he only saw his kids five days and what are we doing with our society, you know, work no work-life balance, it's destroying us, this and that and the other. It's not symptomatic of a greater ill.
2: No, it's, it, is, it is how it is. Like, how brave of him to say this and… Poor guy. Yeah, he's so busy. You know, I didn't intend to to talk about this, but I came across another article last night. Um, the it was I think it was called the unique misogyny of motherhood, uh, and it's by a woman named uh, Hillary Frank, who has a podcast called The Longest Shortest Time. And when she was a mother, she was very lonely and was one of the first of her friends to have children. And so she started a podcast about having children and parenting and all the aspects, sex, money, you know, like psychology of all of it. And she tried to sell it to radio shows. And they said to her, it's just not a very big audience for this. Like, who's going to listen to this except moms? Thanks. Well, but like also (laughs) except moms, which is like, a lot of people, yeah. and people who are not parents, like yourself, have a lot of people in their life who are, who these same questions affect. She talks about, uh, it's a really fascinating article in the New York Times, she talks about wanting to do a story about pelvic repair uh, and how pelvic repair after childbirth for women is very helpful, but they're not always told about it. And she was told, eh, it's too niche, it's too… It's about sex. We don't want to do that. It's whatever. And then she looked through the archives and she found all of these stories, I think, on NPR about uh, Viagra, about erectile dysfunction, Mm -hmm. that this was like a a health concern facing Mm -hmm. people today. Uh But, you know, women's pelvic health or vaginal sexual health, it's like, that's a topic. That's what I think of when you say there was no judgment here, that… For Bill Hader, it's, oh, wow, that is like, those are problems of of the artiste. But for, you're right, if a woman said that, it would be like, what is she doing? Is the show that important? Like nowhere in this article is it raised, should you really be doing this then? If it makes you so miserable, if you don't get to see them, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, who are we to question anybody's, you know, everybody makes their home life and parent life work in a different way.
1: Dude, not too long ago, like, I think it was maybe 2007, so what, that's 12 years? Sure. I remember distinctly having a conversation. um, Okay, this is going to sound obnoxious, but the reason I remember it is because I was in… I was covering the Cannes Film Festival for Mm -hmm. E-Talk. I was with my producer. Madonna had gone on tour or was preparing to go on tour, and she had just adopted, like, a baby. Yeah. And I remember saying, like… Oh, she just adopted a baby. Like, what kind of person adopts a baby and then goes on tour? Right. Right? Like and you know, the my producer was like, "Whatever. She can fucking she's so rich. She's going to be fine." Like, you know, she's Madonna. It has nothing to do with her parenting skills. And again, that was only 12 years ago. Like that was me. I'm calling myself out now. Me saying like, "Yeah, That judgment came from me in the past. Mm -hmm. Yes, I swung myself around, like, learned enough to, like, be able to have… put a lens on a situation like this where Bill Hader's like, yeah, I work on this hit show and I do everything on it and I only see my kids for five days and notice that nobody's having the same conversation in a cafe somewhere in France and being like, Bill Hader's a bad dad. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, it's true. Yeah. And nobody's saying,
2: well, why doesn't he, you know, because the other thing we hear is, oh, there's, there's, you know, we have nannies on set. We have playrooms and schoolrooms and whatever. Like, he can have whatever he wants, um, which is where then he could have them on set every day if he so chose. If yeah. he and his ex have a, you know, a difficult relationship, I have no idea if they do or not. But, yeah, you can… Ask the nanny to drive them back and
1: forth between you. But that's interesting because that is also not something we hear. Speaking of things we don't read very often… That's right. When we we talk about actors and celebrities, on this show we've talked about making it work. Um, I think, like, what, was it last year we had a talk… we had a discussion about um, television series um, negotiating with actors… And shooting in, like, Vancouver or L.A. And, like, the decisions that the women especially have to make. Like, you uproot your whole family. You have to buy a house. You find schools. We were talking… It was about uh, whether or not production was going to shut down in Georgia, whether people were going to leave
2: if, uh, I think, the the governor race went a certain way. right? And Alyssa Milano was talking about
1: having to move her children. Exactly. And before, we've talked about it, too, in relation to Vancouver, for example. Sure. I remember. And all of those are centered around actors who are women. Like, very rarely do we hear about, I don't know, Simon Baker. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, uh, and sorry, the stories about like, oh, it made it work for me. The producer's really great. We set up a nursery on the set. It's like on the soundstage and whatever, and everybody brings their kids. Those are stories we hear from actors who are women. I don't hear stories about Simon Baker being like, oh, yeah, I worked for how many years on The Mentalist and, like, whatnot, and I really wanted to be with closer to my kids, so we set up a nursery. Because they don't have to. Because they're spouses. That's right. Yeah.
2: And my showbiz refrain has often become, I'll always say, I need a wife. Um, because I have a partner who happens to be a man, who's a husband, who also has a career he loves. When I say, I need a wife. It's because when there's late nights or, you know, rewrites or whatever, you hear the person who is ordering this, who doesn't want everybody to go home, being like, let me just call my wife and say I won't be home. And I'm like, where's my wife? Where's the person who's going to pick up my dry cleaning Yeah, and, you know, order a wedding gift for my mother? Like, yes, of course my husband would do that for me as I would for him, but that's not the point. It's somebody whose whole orbit is focused around keeping the home yeah organized so that you can do you. Yeah. Where does that leave us? Well, it it look, I'll say this. Uh this Bill Hader article, you're right that it's uh it's it's uh it revealing in a different but nonetheless yeah. uh a strategic way. It's not on him
1: like what we've just talked about this No, whole no, no, thing. he's
2: neither the Architect nor the like. Yeah, yeah, it's not no, but it's it's interesting. But I will say I'm more interested in this article because it's more honest. Mm -hmm. That the Stardust Fairy Tale article, yeah, doesn't doesn't sound as much like humans talking. Um, And maybe fair enough. They would say we're not here to talk about our marriage. We're not here to talk about our children. We're talking about our projects. And maybe it's even more interesting that their projects, A Quiet Place and Mary Poppins, are fundamentally fantasies, right? Barry and Saturday Night Live, to a certain extent, are very much about human foibles of human people. And so maybe it's just the type of person who makes that kind of project, who makes something more honest. Uh, I come back again to Shonda Rhimes, again to Shonda Rhimes because… Her Year of Yes book deals with all of this copiously, including, you know, she's very, very honest about how she has help and what her nannies do for her and how that works to allow her to be at work. And her characters are resonant because even though they have these fantastic situations where they're busting up underground government conspiracies and whatnot, they are human at the same time. They have these sort of human… almost deficits, like character flaws. You'd be a better CIA operative or whatever if you didn't have humanity, but there it is, pesky again.
1: But I wonder if that's the difference between you and me and, like, almost the most basic age-old line of division where that's almost television and what you can explore and I'm… I've got my head in the clouds in movies. You want the fantasy. (laughs) Yeah, I'll. Cop, right? I will cop to that every single day. Yes, it has defined our relationship and our friendship. 100%. Where I'm enamored of the movie stars, so at the Golden Globes and the SAGs, I'm all up and read up and prepared on the movie categories, and you are all read up and prepared on the TV categories. A hundred, a hundred percent. It's yeah, it's what makes you tick about the
2: about the parts of the yeah about the parts of the fantasy you want to see. So you're Barry, I'm Mary.
1: <laughs> Well,
2: listen, that was really, really well done. I mean, we can't do better than that. No. That's where we have to close it off. Good night, everyone. Uh, From Barry and Mary, (laughs) thank you so much for listening, for all your comments, uh, for your comments on our last episode with Allison Winscotch. We loved hearing about how you loved hearing from her, and so did we. Uh, We want to do more like that, so keep the comments, the emails, and the thoughts
1: coming in all the forms. We love them. We are hoping and working for more special guests mm-hmm. um, in the coming weeks. Uh, join us for next week's podcast. Uh, we are in the thick of awards season. New shows are starting up. Uh, we may… Duanna is… Duanna is pitching hard a Broadway… a Broadway conversation. Look out for that.
2: Oh, it's coming. I don't know if it's coming (laughs) that specific next week, but it's coming for us sooner or later. I'm going to get you back into (laughs) a theater on the Great White Way. Um, In the meantime. In the meantime, keep us posted. Let us know if there's anything about the mechanics of award season that we glossed over in our
1: sleeplessness. Uh, And send us your emails, your tweets. Subscribe to us where you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Work hard. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.